Uh, well, my name is, is Ian Hales. For those of you who uh, were not here last week or don't know me, uh, I'm the pastor of Redemption Church out in the Durham region, and uh, I'm really thankful to be here again. Uh, like I mentioned, I was here last week, and um, I said last week that we were doing a bit of a mini-series, and, and that includes kind of a three-week series, uh, reaching all the way back to a few weeks ago when Daniel was here. He didn't know he was going to be a part of this mini-series, but we have turned it into a mini-series at the, the end of the book of Romans um, we looked last week at Romans chapter 15, the last half of that chapter, and we're going to look at the first half of chapter 16 this morning. And if for some reason or another the guest preacher next week calls in sick, I will gladly come back and finish off Romans chapter 16. <clears throat> last week we looked at having a ministry mindset. And, and we were reminded as we looked at the Apostle Paul and his ministry that, that ministry is not just a job we go to, it's a mindset we carry with us wherever we go. And that's the reality for all of God's people. We are saved into God's service. Every one of us are called to be ministers in some regard, ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God has uniquely gifted his people if you're in Christ today, the Spirit of God has, has gifted you and equipped you for service unto the Lord, and specifically, that service takes place mainly in the body of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus said that he is building one institution on earth, an institution, a living organism that will impact the entire world. It will bring light to the darkness. It will remove people by the grace of God and the power of the Spirit from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Jesus said, I am building my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The question that we need to ask is how is Jesus building His church? And the answer is actually very simple. It is through you and it is through me. We are called to be a part of the church, and that means one thing. Not only must we have a ministry mindset, that that's the, the first part of being engaged in ministry. The second piece is this. You must be dedicated to the church. You must be a people who are dedicated, committed to the ministry that God has called you to. What the church needs most, listen, this is really important, church, what the church needs most is not a charismatic, visionary pastor. It is not a high-profile Christian leader. It is not people with influence or a large public platform. What it needs most is dedication from the people whom God has called into this living organism that He is using to reach the world with the gospel. As Paul is wrapping up his letter, it's fascinating. He wants to acknowledge the dedication of many who have helped him accomplish the task of advancing the gospel and strengthening the church. And I love this. This is a fascinating passage. This is simply a list of names. Now, I understand that when you're reading through the Bible, a list of names is not very appealing to you. In fact, for the most part, lists of names aren't important to any of us unless our name is on the list. But lists tell us some very important things. In fact, some commentators have said that this list is a sociological gold mine 
We know very little about the church in Rome, historically speaking, but this list tells us something of the character and quality of the church and the people who are committed to advancing the gospel. And I want to remind you that this this list is a list of names, and names remind us of people, that the fact that God has, has made people in his image, but this list is a reminder, listen, that God has chosen by his grace to save people into the church to use people, individuals that God knows by name, and these names will jump off the page for us, I trust, and teach us and instruct us in some very specific ways. You see, contrary to the culture that we live in, and I'm sure they lived in too, that is self-serving, self-motivated, here we find a list of people who are selfless and sacrificial. They embody a culture of genuine fellowship, of love, of sacrifice and service unto the Lord. They instruct us, and what we see here is their extreme dedication to the church and her God-given ministry. So let's read through this list together. Beginning at verse 1, we're going to read all the way through verse 16. Paul writes these words, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sancreia, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, And help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinatus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachus. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsmen, Herodian, Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Trephania and Trephosa. Greet the beloved Perseus who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Also his mother who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermes, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nerus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. It is one of the greatest fears of a pastor to get up and read a list of names in front of the church. That is true at baby dedications and membership. It's certainly true when you read passages like this, but these names, again, they remind us that God has called individuals to be a part of the church, and that these individuals were dedicated to the ministry that God had given to them. And I just really simply want to work through this list of names quickly, and and I want to then extract some principles that I trust we can apply to our lives. You'll notice the first few verses describe a woman named Phoebe. Phoebe is kind of singled out. She's receiving here a a, a kind of a special honor. Phoebe is a a servant of the church. It's possible that she served the church in some kind of an official capacity, that she had some kind of a designated role. 
Phoebe is the individual who is tasked by Paul himself with carrying this letter that he has written to the Romans to the church in Rome. He thinks very highly of her. She is clearly responsible. She is clearly a committed individual, not only to, to the church, but as we see in these first few verses, she is committed to Paul himself. She's described as a patron. In other words, she's a woman of means. She has great financial resources, and she has seen the calling upon her life to take those financial resources and invest them in kingdom work. you got to love that. She sees all the wealth that God has given to her, and she sees opportunity for the gospel to advance. She's helped many people in ministry, but she's helped specifically the Apostle Paul. She has supported his work faithfully. I love, I love when the church gets behind people who are in ministry. I love that you're a church. I know this about you uh, from your, your elders and your pastors and your staff. I know how much you love to support the work of the ministry around the world. This woman, Phoebe, has a real heart for ministry. She's from the city of Sancrea, which is about eight miles from Corinth. But I want you to see that not only is she known as a patron, Paul wants her to be known as a sister and a servant. She's someone who selflessly gave of her means to support others. And so Paul calls the church, you'll notice what he says, he says for the, the church in Rome to greet her in a manner, I love this, worthy of the saints. Greet her, he says, in a manner worthy of someone who is accepted by God, who is loved through the gospel. Welcome her, he says. Now, this is language that Paul actually, he seizes upon earlier in the letter. So, if you just look back at Romans chapter 15 for a moment, uh, look with me, uh, Romans chapter 15, verse 7. Paul, writing to the church in Rome, says this, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. You see, for Paul, the way we welcome other, one another in the church is actually a sign of gospel health. It's actually a sign that the gospel has taken root in the culture of the church. And you see, the way we welcome, I love, I love that, that Mark you know, called us to greet one another and welcome one another at the beginning of this service. And I want you to see how, how biblical this is. You see, the way we do this with one another in the church is an expression of how we understand the gospel. You see, we're to welcome one another. Think about what Paul says here in this verse, as God has welcomed us. So let me ask you the question, how has God welcomed you in salvation? Here's how. He's welcomed you like a loving father with open arms. For all those who turn in repentance and faith, God stands as a father with open arms. Here's the best part about the gospel. God didn't welcome you when you cleaned yourself up. Amen? God didn't welcome you when you finally got your act together. God didn't welcome you because he thought somehow you were worthy, somehow you know, he needed you, somehow you were important or special. In fact, Paul has said earlier in the gospel or in this letter to the Romans that he welcomed you while you were still an enemy of his. And I just want you to think about how that impacts how we look at one another. As you look around the church and you think about welcoming one another, here's one of the things that should be going on in your mind. Listen, God welcomed me while I was a sinner and an enemy, and he did so so lovingly. He gave his own son so that I could be brought into his family. And when we look at each other, you know how we ought to see each other? As people who have been bought by the blood of Jesus, all by grace, 
all by grace. And so we welcome one another the way that God has welcomed us. And he pushes that back into how they are to welcome Phoebe. Give her a gospel welcome when she comes. Next, in verse 3, you'll notice he talks about two individuals. He says, greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. This is a, a husband and wife team. And if you're familiar with the book of Acts, we've actually been introduced to this couple before. This is Priscilla and, Aqu- and Aquila. Prisca is a diminutive form of the name Priscilla. The book of Acts tells us that Paul actually met this couple, this husband and wife team in Corinth while he was on his second missionary journey. They originally came from Rome, they went to Corinth, and then they went to Ephesus, and in Acts, it tells us that they were used by God in a mighty way. They were a power couple for the Lord. They were discipling people, and Paul draws attention to this reality. They were even willing to risk their necks for his life. I mean, these are, these are people who were all in for the ministry. They were dedicated and committed. They were willing to put their own life on the line. They even opened up their house for ministry. They're hospitable. Perhaps the church was meeting in their house for a period of time. Verse 4, we're introduced to a, a man by the name of Epinatus. And notice this, he is the first convert in Asia. Now, this is, this is just, just pause and think about that for a moment, okay? I want you to think, some of you know what it's like. Maybe you were the first convert in your family. And you knew kind of what it was to, to embrace Christ and to, to maybe fear some of the alienation, the ostracization. You knew what it was going to cost you. And, and, and there's a sense when you embrace Christ, maybe if you're the first in your family, you kind of feel the sense of aloneness. But can you imagine Epinetus? He's like the first in Asia to embrace Christ. He's like, is there anybody else out there? And yet, what we know is he would not be the last. The gospel would move through this church in Rome and spread in power and waves of people by the grace of God would be saved and brought into the church of Jesus Christ. Verse 6, we meet Mary, who, notice this, worked hard for you. We read about Andronicus and Junia, another husband and wife team. They're described as a prisoner for the sake of the gospel. Again, counting the costs, paying the price. They're well known amongst the apostles. They had a good reputation. And they were even, Paul says, in Christ before him. Paul looks at them and says, man, these people, they embraced Christ long before I did. While I was still persecuting the church, these people were putting their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior. He honors them. They've been laboring faithfully for years. Verse 8 and 9, we get a list of more fellow workers. Verse 10, uh, there are people who are likely servants there that are mentioned. Verse 10, you'll notice what it says, Apelles, who is approved in Christ, greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Now, again, those are probably servants that he's referring to, people who are a part of the, the household and helped do the work of the house there. Verse 12 and 13, we're introduced to some women. You'll notice this. Um, it's more than likely, these, these women in verse 12, uh, Trephania and Trephosa, uh, they're sisters, and, and many believe they were twins. And there's a bit of irony here. Um, you'll notice it says they were hardworking. I love that. These two girls, these sisters are hardworking. The irony is that their names mean delicate and dainty. Okay? 
So here we have two sisters, delicate and dainty, who are hardworking. I mean, they're just, they're just going at it for the Lord. And Paul says, listen, you're nothing like your names. Verse 13, we're told to greet Rufus and his mother, who has been a spiritual mother to Paul as well. Don't you love that? Do you think Paul acknowledges that his friend Rufus' mom was kind of like a spiritual mother to him? I don't know about you. I, 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 you know, Jesus said this, that, that many who come to him are going to have to give up father, muster, mother, um, sister, brother, and potentially even their own life. But they're, but they're told this, listen, that whatever you give up in this life, you're going to receive a hundredfold not only in this life, but in the life to come. You know what he's talking about there? He's talking about the family you gain in the church of Jesus Christ. And I love that Paul says, listen, I, I had a spiritual mother. Rufus is, she's like a mother to me. She cared for me like a mother would her child. I mean, just hear the love and the family dynamics involved here. And then verse 14 to 16, we're given two different groups. Um, they likely represent two different uh, church gatherings, maybe house churches, or maybe they're small groups, meaning together. And so here's my question. What do we do from this list of people? Well, I think we learn that the church must be a dedicated church, that it takes a multitude of people using their gifts and skills and abilities and committed to what God is doing. And so I just want to maybe pull this apart in three ways. I want to look at three things, okay? I want to look at the people it takes, the perspiration it takes, and the power it takes. The people it takes, the perspiration it takes, and the power it takes to be the dedicated church that God is calling us to be. And, and we just notice right out the gates when we read through this list that it doesn't take an elite group of people. It, it doesn't take the cream of the crop, the most influential, the most popular, the most recognizable. No, the church was often poor and weak. I love that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that there were not many wise, not many noble, not many strong or powerful among you, but God has chosen the weak things of the world, the things that are not, so that you can shame the things that are. You just have to understand, this is so often the way God works. He takes the weak things of the world so that he can put his power on display. It's what he shows us in this list. And here's what we see first. Um, the people it takes, well, they're just ordinary people. They're ordinary people like you and like me. They're men and women from all different backgrounds who are living in the city. And God takes ordinary people. This is the good news of the gospel, and this is great news for the church. God takes ordinary people, and he does extraordinary things. I mean, God takes, at the beginning of the church, he takes you know, these, these, these disciples these first 12 men, he takes them, and who are they? They're just ordinary fishermen, tax collectors. I mean, in the book of Acts, the people are looking at them like, well, who are these guys? They're a bunch of uneducated fishermen, and yet God takes these ordinary people, and he turns the world upside down. They're a diverse people, secondly. They're a diverse people. You'll notice as you read through this list, the diversity represented here. You have men and women. You have slave and free. You have Jew and Gentile. You have rich and poor. You have single. You have married. And I love that this list, it highlights all of those things because it's such an incredible representation of the church of Jesus Christ. There's so much diversity represented in this room. And it's simply what we see in this passage. 
a diverse group of people, but it didn't matter. They were all a part of what God was doing in the church because they were all dedicated to the same cause, the same Lord. You'll notice a third, there are united people. There was great unity amidst this great diversity. And this is what the gospel does. Jesus, through the gospel, he knits together a family, and he promised to do so from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And that's why verse 16 is so important. You notice what it says there. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. You see, this idea of greeting one another with a holy kiss, it was certainly a cultural practice, but you need to understand this was a sign of peace and it was a sign of acceptance, and it was a sign of intimacy among the people of God. This, this yes, cultural, but it was a recognition. When they greeted one another with a holy kiss, you know, the, the, maybe the kissing on the cheeks like still takes place in some cultures around the world uh, today. It's, it's, this, it's, it's not something you would do with your enemy. It's something you did with people you genuinely loved and embraced, and you were, you were doing life together because you were part of the same family, united together. Now, obviously... Uh, we do not today typically greet one another with a holy kiss, not in our culture. But, but you, can, you can envision what this does look like for us. This is a warmth of affection that is supposed to be present in the body of Christ. There, there is an intimacy that we're supposed to experience. So you might say in our kind of modern kind of way of doing this, we'd say greet one another with a, with a warm hug or a hearty handshake or a fist pump. I don't care. But do you see the point? The point is this. There is some kind of expression, some kind of way of showing affection for one another in the family of God because we are a people, yes, diverse in many ways, but united by the same gospel, by the same Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You'll notice as well the word greet. In this passage, you can't get away from it. The word greet is used 18 times in this passage. And I love that Paul, Paul wants to express this greeting. It's the dominant command. command. We, we ought to greet one another with a gospel greeting, with a love and affection, understanding what Christ has done for us. These were people who fostered true fellowship with one another, meaningful relationships. And this helps us understand, I think, our own dedication to the church. You see, we all need to learn to serve in our own situation. Whatever situation the Lord has you in, whatever circumstances the Lord may have you in, some of you in here may be single, some of you married, some of you have grown children, some of you have very young children, some of you are rich, some of you are poor. There is certainly male and female in this room but here's what we need to understand when it comes to serving in the church. None of us can excuse ourselves from service in the church because of our situation. We may be inclined to think, well, you know, my stage of life just doesn't allow me to serve at all. Well, I understand that some stages of life are more difficult than others, but no stage of life, maybe with very few exceptions, are an excuse to not serve the church of Jesus Christ and the Lord Jesus Christ. Every situation provides its own unique obstacles and challenges, but they also present their own unique opportunities. And through this ragtag group of very ordinary, diverse, but unified people, the impact of the gospel 
was profound in this great city of Rome. So let me ask you, church, what kind of impact do you, as the people of God in Markham, want to have on this city, in this place, at this time? It is in many ways dependent upon your dedication to the church of Jesus Christ. Your willingness to not only say Jesus is my Lord and I love Jesus as my Savior, but to say I love what Jesus loves. I love his bride, the church of Jesus Christ, and I recognize that it is through the church that God is going to impact this world for his glory. This is a call to dedicate yourself to what God is dedicated to, and God is dedicated to his bride. Next, though, we see this, the perspiration it takes. I don't want you to be confused and to think that this is somehow easy work. Just to say you're dedicated to something, it actually implies a costliness. And today this is important because we want things super easy, right? We live in a fast food culture. We live in a culture where everything is available at the touch of a button. Instant gratification like never before. You want information? Just pull out your phone. Boom, it's right there. I mean, we, we get upset when we're going through drive throughs right? Fast food drive throughs and it takes longer than three minutes. For many, there is an aversion to hard work. But as you look at this list, it's so amazing. The word work or workers should jump off this page. Paul draws our attention to it over and over again. The workers in the gospel, those who worked for, hard for you over and over It reminds us, listen, that we are a people who are called to work. In fact, if you read Paul's letter to the Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, he actually describes how when Jesus ascended on high, he gave gifts to men, he says. He gave to the church, the the prophets, the evangelists, the teachers, the pastors, the shepherds. And then he says this, uh, for the building up of the church, for the work of the ministry. He reminds us that, that listen, the reason that we are equipped in the church is actually to do work, ministry, gospel work. Work can be all kinds of things. We don't need to kind of pigeonhole ourselves in thinking about work in one particular way. Uh, for example, uh, there are physical things that need to be done. Physical work in the church is necessary and important. There's mental work in the church. There is the work of prayer, the work of hospitality, the work of visiting others, the work of counseling, of teaching, of discipling, of organizing events, of giving of resources. There are many, many jobs in the church, and many are seen but listen, far more are unseen. Some of you, some of you are doing a lot behind the scenes, and, and nobody in this church even knows what you're doing. And I want to encourage you, because sometimes I think the work of ministry feels like it, it can be thankless, it, it can be exhausting, and, and you feel like, you know, what you're doing for the Lord's not recognized, but if that's you today, can you just be reminded that the Lord sees? The Lord knows everything you're doing. And the Lord is so pleased with how you are working for him. Whether it's seen or not, recognized or not, God God knows he sees and one day he will reward you for your faithfulness. Paul commands, or commends, excuse me, a few characteristics of our work. I think we can learn some principles here for how we are to work. What does this perspiration look like? Well, first, it's humble work. It's humble work. It's done not for self, but for God. 
I want you to see that none of these people were, were looking to get their name on a list. None of these people were looking to get a, a plaque with their name on it on the wall or a, a wing of the church named after them. It was all for God and for his glory, and that should be what characterizes all our work in the church of Jesus Christ. Secondly, it's shared work. He calls them his fellow workers. They're serving alongside one another because we have this common cause, this common goal, the gospel of Jesus Christ, to go and make disciples of all nations. You see, Paul, I love this, Paul was not a one-man band. He knew that he couldn't do what he did without the help of the church, with all these people, an army of people beside him, behind him, in front of him. Paul was dependent upon all these people to do what they were doing for the Lord. He saw this as shared work, and we understand this, right? Many hands make light work. That's true with the gospel. But notice as well, not only was it humble work and shared work, it was often costly work. And you don't need to, 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 to look at this list to know that. All you have to do is read through Paul's testimony in 2 Corinthians about what it meant to be an apostle of Jesus Christ and, and the, the marks of apostleship that he bore on his own body. But he does highlight some people in this passage, you'll, you'll remember, who put their neck on the line for him, who went to prison for him or with him, however that looked. There were people who were willing to risk it because of the value of the mission. Here's what you need to say. Like how, how could they do this? Why would they do this? Because they saw the value of the mission. That They saw that their lives were a very small thing in comparison, listen, to all the work that needed to be done. The millions of people who didn't know Jesus, who'd never heard the gospel, they were willing to give everything, all of themselves, even their own life if necessary, to see the gospel advance. I think this is really important for us to ask. I, I, I don't know if you've kind of done these mental exercises before. You know, you've asked the hypothetical question, well, what would I do? What would I do if somebody threatened my life? Would, would I deny Jesus? I know you've all played that scenario out in your, your, your life at some point. If, some, if somebody broke into my house, put a gun to my head and said, if, if you don't deny Jesus right now, you're dead. And I, th I think most of us in here would want to say, you know what, I would, I would stand for Jesus I would give my life for Jesus. And I trust, I pray that would be true of every single one of us if we were placed in that situation. But, but here's the reality. Most of us will never face that situation. Most, there are people around the world who are facing that right now. Most of us will never face that situation. Most of our lives are not on the line. Most of our cost for the gospel in our culture in our day and age is very minimal in comparison to what we're talking about right here. So here's the real question. If your life is not on the line right now, if, if you could say, I'm willing to die for Christ right now in that hypothetical situation, are you not willing to say that you will live for Christ today? To give everything today? To truly follow Jesus where it's not that costly, where it's easy to follow Jesus, so to speak? And I understand it's getting harder and harder to follow Jesus in many ways in our culture, but make no mistake about it. I mean, the opportunity to live for Christ is now. Now live for Christ Give everything for following him. It's costly work. But notice this next, it's patient work. It's patient work. This is so helpful. He, ta he talks again about this, this Epinetus, the first convert in Asia. And, and it reminded me as I was thinking through this passage, listen, of the, the patience it's required sometimes to do gospel ministry and gospel work. You know, we, we want things to happen fast and quick and explosive, right? We, we want everything to be like P. 
Peter on Pentecost. Just preach a message and 3,000 people get saved, right? That's the way we want it, but the reality is, listen, oftentimes the way the gospel works and the way the gospel moves is through a long obedience in the same direction. It is a consistent pattern of faithfulness. It is tilling the soil, planting the seeds over and over again, watching and waiting and praying And I think this is particularly important, especially for some of you here today who are parents. Uh, You're doing the hard work, and we need to learn this, right? So much of ministry, so much of life is doing the hard work now, believing it's going to pay dividends in the future, amen? That is never more true in parenting, where you are every day, you're trying to live the gospel and and preach the gospel to your kids and teach them and instruct them and, and help them see Christ in the midst of the messiness of life. And you pray every single day, hoping and believing and trusting that one day God in his grace will open the eyes of their heart so that they might put their faith and trust in him as Lord and Savior. But it doesn't always happen instantly. And I just want to encourage, some of you are like, man, I've been, this is years, my kids are teenagers, they're still not following Jesus. Listen, trust, trust that you're still tilling the soil, keep going at it. For you who are working in kids' ministry, faithfully every week, down there right now, there are, there are people pouring into your kids and who may never see the fruit of their labors now, or maybe even in their lifetime, but maybe sometime down the road, right? God, by his grace, will unlock all of the, the gospel truths that have been poured into their heart in those young and early days, and will awaken them to the good news of Jesus Christ. For those of you who are small group leaders, or those of you who are discipling others, listen, it is patient work. Don't grow weary in doing good. Keep at it and recognize this lastly, it is hard work. It is hard work. Over and over again in this passage, we're seeing that not only was this work, but I look at verse 12, for example. Greet those workers in the Lord, Trephania and Trephosa. Greet the beloved Perseus who has worked hard in the Lord. I want you to see, too, in verse 12, um, there are three women that are mentioned, four in this passage that are really drawn attention to. And there's two words that are used for work in this passage. One of them is a general word that simply means just to work. The other word, though, is different, and, and Paul chose it intentionally, and it implies hard labor. It implies difficult work, toilsome labor, uh, to the point of sweating, There are those who toil and labor with a wearisome effort to the point of exhaustion. That's what Paul is saying. And Paul uses that word for four people in this passage. And by the way, this is fascinating. They're all women. The men are lazy. I'm just kidding. But it it is amazing, right? It's amazing that he highlights women. It's important to recognize that, that just because men have certain positions in the church, it doesn't mean that they are more valuable than women in the life of the church. Women are greatly praised in the scriptures for their hard work. They're greatly honored for their devotion to Christ in his church. They're greatly used by God in the mission of the gospel. One commentator said that that there was women, it was women after all, who were last at the cross and first to the tomb. One commentator says this, the prominent place occupied by women in Paul's entourage shows that he was not at all the male chauvinist of popular fantasy. That's good, because liberal scholars today want to suggest that Paul is some kind of a chauvinist. 
you know, obsessed with the patriarchy, diminishing women, but that is not true. He honors them. He thanks the Lord for them. He recognizes that his ministry would be nothing without them. And it's not just the women, it's the men as well. And I want you to see that God calls us all to hard work in the gospel. All of us are called to serve together. As I mentioned, it's going to look different for each of us, different situations, different resources, different schedules, but God has given us all opportunities. My charge to you, church, is do not grow weary in doing good, as Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, especially in the household of faith. So, so three questions, three questions really quickly by way of application. First, are you working? Are you working for the Lord in the church? Or, or are, you, are you spectating? Are you simply warming a seat? Now, this isn't my church, so I want to tread lightly here. In my church, you know what? I, here's what I say to my church family. I, I say to people, and I love you. I mean this with all love and respect. I say, if, if you want to come here and simply warm a seat every week, this is not going to be a, a comfortable place for you. Because we're not looking for people to be spectators in the church of Jesus Christ. We're looking for people to get off the bench and in the game. We're trusting that God has brought you into the church, that he has gifted you and equipped you, and he's called you here for a reason. So we want to see how God is going to not only grow you here, but how God is going to use you here. And so I hope I'm not overstepping kind of my, my role here. But, but, but if you listen, I think I can confidently say, according to the scripture, if you are part of the church of Jesus Christ, you need to be working for Jesus Christ. Amen? So are you working? Question number two, how are you working? Are you mailing it in? Are you doing the bare minimum? Are you just kind of getting by so that people see that you're a participant? Or does your work look like this work? The humble work, the shared work, the costly work, the patient work, the hard work. I think it's important for us to step back every once in a while and reorient the way we're doing things. Maybe God is pressing that into you today. And then maybe the third question is just, okay, well, I'm not working, or I'm not working well, or, or I don't know what to do, so what can I do? Where should I work? I'm glad you asked. And, and if that's you today, I want to just maybe uh, read a quote from Charles Spurgeon. He, he said it better than I ever could. Spurgeon said this. He, he encouraged people um, to seek the lowest forms of servanthood so that they could better represent Christ. <laughs> He says, he says, in effect, Jesus is our model, and look at, look at, Jesus was willing to stoop to the lowest of the lows to serve, and that ought to be what we ought to do. Here's what he says. He says, if there is a position in the church where the worker should have to toil hard and get no thanks for it, take it and be pleased with it. He goes on to say, if you can perform a service with which few will ever seek to do themselves or appreciate it when performed by others, occupy it with holy delight. And then he says this, covet humble work, and when you get it, be content to continue in it. There is no great rush after the lowest places, and you will rob no one by seeking them. <laughs> That's a good word. We need to work. We need to work the right way. We need to roll up our sleeves and get at the task. And lastly, we need to see the power it takes. The power it takes. It's possible to work hard, but with the wrong power source. I once had a friend who, had, uh, who borrowed their, their dad's car, and it was a, a diesel engine, and they put petrol fuel in it. I promise you it did not end up well. But I think as Christians, we are inclined to do that as well. 
we, we, we try to access the wrong power source, and then we we're frustrated when we, we aren't working properly, when the work is not enjoyable, there is no delight in it. And I think it's easy to become bitter and burn out if you're seeking, uh, if you're working from the wrong power source. It is very easy in ministry and, and even for the gospel to become bitter and burn out. And let me give you a few ways this happens. I think you can become bitter and burn out if you're seeking to gain approval from others. And many people do this. There are those with a high need for approval, and those people, generally speaking, have the highest potential of burnout. You take already hard work and you actually make it exponentially harder than it needs to be because you're constantly working for and from approval, affirmation from others, recognition from others. And so burnout is also a, a byproduct, secondly, of working from guilt. Many of us, we, we just serve the Lord because we just, we just think we have to and, and we're, we're a little bit legalistic and we think that, that, that this is what I'm just supposed to do and we feel guilty if we're not. And so we say yes to everything and then in the end we're mad because we did everything and we need to learn to say no. Burnout and bitterness can also come from a Messiah complex. You know what I mean by that? Trying to be everybody's Messiah thinking that it all depends upon me, and if I don't do it, nobody will, and, and how, how are people going to be saved? I mean, I mean, some of us, maybe, maybe we, we don't realize it, but our motto is, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's all about your power. You see, you cannot be powered by the approval of, approval of others. You must be powered by the approval from God. And you cannot be powered by guilt. You must be powered by grace. You can't save anyone, only Jesus saves. And when we see his saving power, when we are fueled by his grace, and we are seeking only his approval to be pleasing to him, we will have, as God's people, the power it takes to be the dedicated, committed people, the dedicated church that God has called us to be, without bitterness and without burnout. Our power comes from, listen, our union with Christ. This is going to be crucial for many of you to understand today. Our power comes from our union with Christ. Now, throughout this passage, here's one of the things that you read over and over again. In the Lord. In Christ. In Christ. In the Lord. In the Lord. The idea there of in means not only that these people are saved, but in implies a power source, a strength. You see, we are enabled to do all of this because we are in Jesus Christ. We are in Him, and He is in us. Listen, when you are saved, if you're a Christian here today, when you are saved, you were not just washed clean of all your sin, although you were. You were not just given the imputed, given the, the, the credited, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, although you were. You were actually given the Holy Spirit to dwell inside of you. you in your salvation, listen, you are baptized and united in Christ to his death, burial, and resurrection. And here's what that means. It means that the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is now at work within you who believe. 
It means not only has that power brought you from death to life, that power right now is coursing through your body, is giving you all that you need for life and godliness. It's empowering you to use the God-given gifts and talents and abilities that God has given to you to fulfill the calling that he has placed on your life as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. What he has called you to, he has equipped you for. And that's what the church is. It is those who are in Christ, we who are rescued and redeemed and reconciled. We are those who have seen our sin. We know our weakness, but we know the strength and power of our God who is mighty to save. Amen? We know the God who came from heaven to earth to snatch us from the depths of darkness, to overwhelm us with his marvelous light. By his grace and power, we have repented of our sin and put our trust in him. And as a result, we are no longer in Adam, dead in our sin. We are in Christ. We are those who know that our God is dedicated to us. He foreknew us. He predestined us to be conformed into the image of his son. He called us. He justified us. He will one day glorify us, as Paul says in Romans 8, 31 and 32. And and, this is just a list of names, right? Like I said, nobody likes a list of names unless their name is on it. And while our name is not on this list, if you're in Christ, can I remind you, your name is is on another list. Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. In that book are written all the names of those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. If you're in Christ, your name is on that list, all because, listen, he didn't just risk his life, he gave his life. And if you are not in Christ today, you can be, and your name can be graven upon his hands. Your name can be written in the Lamb's book of life. Church, our God is dedicated to us. Jesus is dedicated to his church. Let us as his chosen, blood-bought church, be dedicated to him and together, listen, give all of ourselves for him and for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would make us a dedicated people. God, I thank you for those that you have called to yourself in this room. I thank you for the way you have saved them. You have rescued and redeemed them and empowered them. I thank you that you have called them into your service. And I pray, Lord, that this morning as we have looked at your word and heard from you, I pray that their hearts would be filled with with joy in knowing you. They would be refreshed with the grace of the gospel, that they would be revived by the beauty of the glorious Christ. And I pray that there would be a an overwhelming sense or desire in their hearts to not just remain committed to you, but, Lord, each and every day recommit, rededicate their lives to you. God, for those in this place that don't know you, who have never surrendered to your lordship, God, I pray that in your kindness and grace, even in this moment, they would turn, humble themselves before you, repent of their sin, embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior, see how dedicated you are to them, And in turn, dedicate and commit themselves to you. God, take us, your people, and use us for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.